You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of Yahweh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though Yahweh had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because Yahweh had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. She was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart only Her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of Yahweh and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only... May Yahweh establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, 
as you live, my Lord. I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh. And he worshipped Yahweh there. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 719 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, September 23rd, 2023, the first official day of fall. And it's a nice cool morning here in Greeley, 48 degrees Fahrenheit as I begin recording on the dot at 723 a.m. That was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you'll notice, if you think about it this way, you'll know that this is correct, this is true. 1 Samuel starts with the family. We start with a man, and it is a certain man. But then as the chapter goes on, it doesn't seem as though the story is really about the man, and yet the man, whose name is Elkanah, is the context, right? The man is the context, and who is this Hannah woman? You know how to pinpoint her location. Something like an address is given to us by not just what part of Israel she is to be found in, the hill country of Ephraim. Lots of things happen in the hill country of Ephraim, by the way, but not just that, right? It's not just that there's a part of the country that she lives in. It's whose wife is she? Hannah is the primary protagonist, the main character of 1 Samuel chapter 1. But Hannah has an address. Where is that address? Well, go looking in the hill country of Ephraim. Go looking in Ramathaim Zophim. Go asking around for Elkanah the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. If there are several men named Elkanah, this would be the one who's the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu. So you have something like a last name. Go asking around in Ramathaim Zophim for Elkanah. Hannah is one of his wives. But he is not the main character. Elkanah is not the main character of First Samuel chapter 1. And yet, he's an address. He helps to provide more of a pinpoint location for where this woman, Hannah, is coming from, where she lives. What is her context? Her context is she is the wife of Elkanah. But wait, no, correction. She's one of the wives of Elkanah. She's one of two wives of Elkanah. She has a rival. But that is to say, too, she's regarded as a rival to another woman named Panina. Panina gives her a hard time. Panina harasses her and picks at her and makes snide remarks and, if you will, rubs her face in it that 
she has no children. Hannah has no children, and Penina has that over Hannah, which is to say, based on the context, Penina implies not just that she's a better woman than Hannah because she has children and Hannah has no children, but also in relation to God, if God is the one who gives the fruit of the womb as a reward, Penina perhaps is strongly implying on a regular basis to Hannah that God loves her more. God loves me more. Yeah, maybe Elkanah loves you more, but God loves me more because I have all these children. But then what's curious is through no apparent fault of Hannah's, Penina feels very threatened and she's very insecure about and she's perhaps very bitter about the fact that their husband, they have the same husband, this man named Elkanah, her husband, their husband, loves Hannah more. So Penina has had sons and daughters, it doesn't say how many, but multiple, plural, sons and daughters, numerous children perhaps, who knows how many, certainly more than Hannah, and yet Elkanah prefers Hannah for some reason. The reason is not stated, but you could speculate. You could plausibly wonder and make an educated guess, particularly if Penina is the type who likes to pick and be passive-aggressive and be petty. That probably is not just something in relation to Hannah. It's probably a characteristic of hers. But then also, too, what little is said about Elkanah in the way that Elkanah relates to Hannah, something is said in a series of four questions. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Something is communicated about his attitude, his way of relating, but then also notice what is not said. What do we not see any indication of? And this is not to make too much of an argument from silence, but it is to say you don't get this in the text that Elkanah tells Penina to stop it. So in other words, Penina is always picking at Hannah to the point that Hannah doesn't even want to eat. Hannah is so distressed and she's so bothered and she's so upset. And this gives her anxiety, it says. It causes vexation, but that is to say anxiety, right? She's a nervous wreck about it to the point that she's in tears and to the point that she doesn't want to eat and to the point that her heart is sad. And this is not just a passing sadness. This is depression. So Hannah is depressed. And why is that? Because she doesn't know where she stands in relation to God, I would say. And perhaps also, too, because Elkanah doesn't put a stop to it. Okay, he loves her, it says. He prefers her between these two rival wives. Maybe even Elkanah plays this up. He loves Hannah, and he doesn't particularly favor Peninnah, and yet he goes back and forth. Otherwise, Peninnah would not be pregnant often enough to have multiple sons and multiple daughters. So Elkanah goes back and forth between these two wives. And perhaps he sees it as somewhat to his benefit that they goad each other on and they compete for his attention and his affections. And yet, what is it doing to Hannah that Penina is bringing her to the point of depression? And for that matter too, why are these all questions? Why are there no assertions? What 
Elkanah could do in this situation, there's no indication that he does do, what he could do is pay attention and watch and observe and know the answer to the question. And he perhaps does know the answer to the question, and perhaps he's not living with his wife in an understanding way, and perhaps his prayers are hindered, but then perhaps he's too distracted to care much about that. We don't know. There's a lot that you could fill in with speculation, and I don't want to go off on some rabbit trail that ends nowhere and realize all we've done is speculate. But what we do see is he notices that Hannah is not doing so hot. She's not doing so well. But then his capstone question is in the text, am I not more to you than 10 sons? In other words, he's implying she should be content with him. And if he really enjoys being with her, he would like for her to be less focused on how sad she is. He would like her to be focused more on paying attention to him. But then there's a certain selfishness to that. If he's not protecting Hannah and guarding her heart from the pick, 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 pick of Panina. There's a certain selfishness. And what does she get out of this? Well, what she gets out of this is all in relation to, or near enough, all in relation to her bringing her petition to God. And think here just for a moment about New Testament admonition, exhortation, from the Apostle Paul who says, be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and thanksgiving in everything, bring your requests to God, bring your petitions to God. That would also include, it would seem, based on how 1 Samuel chapter 1 goes, it would also include if you have no children and you desperately want to have a child. Maybe you do wonder, if you're in that spot, why am I? I not a parent yet. Why do we not have any children? And oh, by the way, Lauren and I, we're expecting our ninth in November, but let me just get this out of the way. That doesn't mean that we're inherently more righteous than somebody who doesn't have any children. It doesn't mean that we're inherently more righteous by virtue of having so many children than a couple who have tried for years to get pregnant and they aren't able to, or they've tried for years and they have miscarriage after miscarriage. We've known several couples around our age who have those kinds of issues. And it's very curious what's going on with our diet and our environment, perhaps the things we eat and drink or the clothes we wear or the houses that we live in or the places we work or our lifestyle or the medicines that we take. It's a very curious thing, very concerning. And yet Lauren and I, we've had no issues And we know that the good Lord above has a good purpose, and we trust his good purpose, even when we don't understand, which is fairly often. (laughs) And yet we're not more righteous, right? We're not more righteous than the couple who's tried, is trying, and they have no children. But for those couples who don't have any children, maybe their prayers are different than the kinds of prayers that Lauren and I pray. We pray having had a few miscarriages, having had one ectopic pregnancy, Lauren having had health issues, we pray that the Lord will comfort Lauren when she's not feeling well, that he will heal her. We pray that God will protect Lauren and our babies as they are in the womb, that the Lord will prosper 
the birth. We pray for our children as they grow older. We pray those kinds of prayers, and we pray that the Lord will help us to make ends meet, to provide for, to protect, to instruct these children, to set a good example, to have a home that honors him. We pray those kinds of prayers. But if you're in Hannah's shoes, the prayer you pray is that you would have a child. And the reason for this is a curious reason. One, there's a need for validation, which Hannah clearly feels because of the harassment she's endured for some time on a regular basis from Penina. She wants validation. She wants validation of the sort which will shut that woman up. (laughs) She wants validation of the sort which will give Penina no excuse, at least not that one, for harassing her on a regular basis. And also, if sometimes Elkanah is exploiting this rivalry between Hannah and Penina, Hannah wants that to stop being something that can be used, exploited as, oh, well, why can't you be more like Penina, right? Not that Elkanah is saying that because he asks, am I not more to you than 10 sons? But if he was ever thinking it, right, she probably lies awake at night sometimes thinking, I wonder, right? I wonder if he would love me even more. But then there's probably a better question. There's probably a more important question in relation to God. Since Hannah brings this request to God, there's probably a question as to, has Hannah displeased Yahweh? Has she offended Yahweh? Has she sinned against him? Why is God punishing her? It's probably something like the question that she's asking. And that was a common question to ask. And that's still a common question to ask for people who are suffering or they're disappointed. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you find yourself depressed and you do know God and you love God, you may wonder like Job does, why is this happening? You may say things like Naomi in the book of Ruth does, Yahweh has made me bitter. In its way, that's a statement of faith that God does rule and reign and preside over all these things. And in its own way, it's an indication that we don't understand, right? We don't understand why we are suffering, why we have suffered loss, but we know that God has allowed this to happen or God has orchestrated this. Either way, have we offended God if he has not blessed us with protection over this area of life or he's not blessed us with what we hoped for, what we were expecting, what other people get? Right? Why does Penina, when she acts the way that she does, why does she get so many children and why am I barren? That would strongly imply that it's not for lack of trying on Hannah's part. And yet what's noticeable too in this first chapter of First Samuel is one, the context here is at Shiloh, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are priests. And oh, by the way, these two guys, you'll come to find out, you'll come to learn, they are not good guys. Hophni and Phinehas are corrupt. Think Hunter Biden. If Hunter Biden were a priest, that's their kind of character. They're dishonest, they're cheats, they're scoundrels, but they have this position relative to their father, Eli, and Eli doesn't stop them. Maybe even sometimes he encourages them. He encourages them at least by his silence, and yet... Hophni and Phinehas are in this position. They have these titles. They are priests. They are the go-betweens. But 
what is this? You have Hannah, after she ate and drunk in Shiloh, you have her rising up, going in, and praying, and praying in her heart. And only her lips are moving. And she gets this weird comment from Eli, the priest, who says, what? He says, what? How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. You know what? Eli is being very presumptuous here, but then also he may be overcompensating for how hands-off, how passive he is with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Pick at the people who come in, seem very severe or strict, or be quick to correct them so that it looks like you are this character who's keeping the peace. Meanwhile, that will hopefully distract from what your own sons are doing. And yet, her response is very polite, very respectful. No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. So then she starts to explain. She starts to unpack why she's troubled. She says, I haven't drunk wine or strong drink. I've been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. So here, you know, pouring out your soul, at least in the English, carries with it a certain connotation given the context of not drinking wine or strong drink that like you might pour a glass of wine or strong drink into a cup and then drink it. You also might pour it out if you weren't going to drink it. But then with regards to one's spirit, one's heart, to pour out your spirit and your heart, maybe perhaps is to say, I am at wit's end. I'm at a loss for what to do. And so I'm just pouring my heart out to God. And otherwise, if he doesn't have an answer for my prayer, I don't know what to do, right? She's depressed. She's anxious. She's vexed. But she describes herself as a worthless woman. And yet she says, don't regard me as a worthless woman, which is to say she's had quite enough of that. She's had enough of being regarded as a worthless woman. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. And Eli doesn't know what her petition is, what her request is. At least it doesn't get into it here. Eli says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. But Eli doesn't know what her petition is. I mean, there's no indication that he does, but he says, ah, go in peace. So now if this is just kind of keeping up appearances and going through the motions, he checked the box of being willing to rebuke, even if it wasn't a good fit, even if he had done zero due diligence to figure out what's wrong with this woman, what's the deal. And now he's checked the box of being someone who blesses. Ah, yes, may the Lord grant your request. Well, wait a second. What if her request is a bad one? You didn't take any time to unpack whether the thing she wants is reasonable or good. You assume that it is, but man, some priest. But then that's just it, right? That's part of the context of 1 Samuel chapter 1. These priests are not good guys. They have the position. They're not good guys. There's still an appropriateness to showing respect for them, but they're not good guys. And then what happens though? right? It's not because Eli said, I don't think the Lord grant your petition. And yet God heard her petition. So they rose up early in the morning, verse 19, worshiped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, Ramah being Ramathim, Zophim, Ramah for short. Elkanan knew his wife, Hannah, and Yahweh remembered her. 
See that little bit there. Yahweh remembered her. Hannah is known by her husband in a very intimate way, which is to say they have relations of the kind which are necessary for conception and pregnancy, bringing children into the world. They have relations. Elkanah knows his wife in that way, but it says Yahweh remembered her, which is to say Yahweh was listening. God was listening to her prayer and saw her afflicted and vexed and so troubled and so upset and saw her appealing to him in her heart, asking and therefore believing, asking and believing that God could grant this request. And it says here in verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh, which is to say, she doesn't forget that she asked God for a child, and she doesn't forget that she believed that God could give her this child. She credits God for giving her this son. And then it says, interestingly enough, she kept him home until he was weaned, which is to say she was breastfeeding him. She was nursing this son of hers. And how long was that? How long? How long is it before she weans him? Well, there's no specific age mentioned, although 1 Samuel 1 verse 24 says the child was young when she brought him. The consensus is he was probably two or three, which is to say she was not in a hurry to wean him, although she did follow through with her pledge, her commitment to dedicate Samuel to the priesthood, to this service. But what's curious about that too is that these are not Levites. This guy Elkanah is an Ephrathite, which means that Samuel is of the tribe of Ephraim, not the tribe of Levi. But nevertheless, he's dedicated to God. He's dedicated to Yahweh and to the priestly service or to service in the temple. He's an Ephrathite. He lives in the hill country of Ephraim. There's no indication that he is a Levite. What is he doing being dedicated to this work? Well, now think about it. For one, I don't know. But again, if we say that this is mysterious and there appears to be some kind of a contradiction because only the Levites were supposed to be doing the priestly duties, if we remember what I said about this priest Eli going through the motions, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, not being good guys, as we'll find out as we read on into 1 Samuel, these guys don't really pay close attention to the rules. They kind of just bend the rules as it seems good to them. And so it's not actually all that surprising if Samuel is not a Levite, and yet he ends up being dedicated to service in the temple, if they just say, yeah, it's fine, it's okay. As relaxed as Eli is with regards to the behavior and the conduct of his sons, it would not at all be surprising if they're also relaxed about Samuel, who is not a Levite, being dedicated to the service of the temple. That wouldn't be all that surprising either if he's this very young boy and he's not of age. He hasn't come of age. He's not matured to the point where you're supposed to be. He's very young, but yeah, we'll put him to work. We'll give him some things to do. He can do little odds and ends, little chores here and there. Yeah, we'll put him to work. Just because God doesn't intervene, that doesn't mean that he's endorsing this per se. 
in all its particulars. But then if there's a general attitude of we just do whatever we want and go through the motions on the part of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they get judgment for that general orientation towards God, which is lawless, which is irreverent, which is disobedient. But in relation to Samuel, Samuel isn't at fault at all. It wasn't his choice. He's not in control of what's being done here. Hannah may not know. It was certainly Eli's job to know these kinds of things. And if he didn't object, well, then she made a pledge. He could have said, well, no, you're released from that pledge because that's not actually permissible. But he doesn't say anything about that. There's no indication that he objects or releases her from her pledge, her vow to dedicate Samuel to the service of the temple. And so it just goes on, right? It just happens. And sometimes that's what it is. It's, this is the way things are done, but then why are we doing it this way when God says such and such? Yeah, don't ask questions like that. It's fine. Just leave it the way that it is. You know that the dynamic is dysfunctional when the priority is the authority of this person in these kinds of contexts, and they wave off an appeal to the authority of Scripture, or it just doesn't even come up. This is part of how you know that they're in a bad place spiritually in relation to God, and yet Hannah's not in a bad place for bringing her vexation, her anxiety, her depression to God. She's not in a bad place to do that. She's in a bad place, and so she does that, but it's not bad for her to bring it to God. And it's an innocent mistake, as I read this, on her part, if this is a mistake, if Samuel really shouldn't have been dedicated to the service in the temple the way that he was. But, you know, on that point, it's good for us to know that you can have these things not being done in order. You can have the clergy being negligent or disobedient or faithless, and that does not at all impede God's ability to do justice to those who are misbehaving. A man reaps what he sows. And it also in no ways impedes God's willingness to lovingly, graciously, mercifully answer prayers from those who petition him directly. And Hannah petitions him directly. Now, Eli jumps in because she's praying directly to God. Maybe he senses that she's going directly to God and, hey, wait a second, I'm supposed to be the middleman here. I don't know. And that's Again, speculation. I can speculate with the best of them. I don't mean to emphasize what is not there at the expense of what is there. We should attend to what is there. But what is there is Yahweh remembered her. And if she was praying to God in her heart, pouring out her spirit to God, just a thought, speaking honestly, I don't think that God was waiting for Eli to say, may it be done as you have asked. That was probably a non-factor for God. Or at least it should be a non-factor for us. If we say, oh, well, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, not good sorts. God's not going to answer my prayer because that guy who's the go-between is not such a good guy. Or in the case of Elkanah, if Elkanah was not living with his wife in an understanding way, not really protecting her, not really guarding her heart from harassment, constant harassment by Penina, it's Elkanah's prayers, which were being hindered. And who knows? Maybe Elkanah was the one praying for Hannah to have a child. You know, if this is multiple, multiple children that 
Panina has, and it's been bothering Hannah for so long, maybe part of the reason why the prayer wasn't being answered, if Elkanah was praying on behalf of Hannah that her womb would be opened, perhaps the reason the prayer was being hindered is because Elkanah was not living with his wife in an understanding way, and perhaps also Hannah was relying too much on Elkanah to be the one to take that prayer to God. Who's the object of Hannah's faith in that case? Elkanah. The object of her faith should be God. And she can go directly to God, and here she finally does. And maybe she finally does because he's not getting it. Elkanah is not protecting her. He's not living with her in an understanding way. He's living with her in a selfish way. Perhaps. Possibly. It seems reasonable to me, anyways. What's not in question, though, is Yahweh remembered her, which is to say, Yahweh answered her prayer. Her prayer was that she would have a child, she would have children. God granted that good desire, that good request. And that's, oh, by the way, not the whole story, right? This is just the intro to the first book of Samuel, because this is where Samuel comes from. This is his context too. Hannah's context is that she is one of two wives to a man named Elkanah. Samuel's context is that he is the son of this woman, Hannah, this man, Elkanah, and he's going to be growing up from a young age. He's a young child when he's handed over to this guy, Eli, and by extension, surely, Hophni and Phinehas. This is our intro to the person of Samuel, who is a very important figure. In due time, you'll come to understand why he is nicknamed the Kingmaker. But moving on, let's talk about some current events items. I ran across a map of the United States earlier this morning, and it was a curious map, and I had never seen anything like it, and it got me thinking. This map, to unpack this and set this up a little bit, this map was a map of the male-to-female ratio across the U.S., but it was kind of fuzzy, right? It was kind of just like a map of weather patterns in the U.S., where you see higher temperatures and lower temperatures, that kind of a thing, or where perhaps you see that there's going to be snow in this part of the country and there's going to be rain in this part of the country, and then the rest is just clear skies or cloudy or no precipitation. It was one of those kinds of maps, but it was with regards to the male-to-female ratio by state. And so I wanted more granular data. I wanted to know what are actually the numbers by state and for the country as a whole. Now, my Google search turned up a wisevoter.com page, state rankings, male-to-female ratio by state, exactly what I was looking for. So thanks, Google. Thanks for that. Now, for no reason are you the world's most popular search engine by a long shot, by far. Male-to-female ratio by state. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. The map shows some warmer colors in the parts of the country where there are more women than men. And the more disproportionate this is in favor of more women, the redder the state is. And those states where there are more men than women are in blue. And so this is a spectrum. 
Those states that are more male dominant are in blue. Those states where there's more women than men are in red. The top spot goes to Alaska at a ratio of 110.34. So for every 100 women, there are 110 men. The bottom spot, the very last spot, goes to Mississippi, curiously. For every 100 women in Mississippi, there are 93 men. And then from there, there's quite a lot of variation. Middle of the pack, interestingly, seems to be Washington State, 100.3. Hawaii, 100.12. Nevada, 100.82. Very close, right? Very, very even ratio, men to women. But then why is it? Honest question. Why is it that down south, the states of Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, North and South Carolina, the male to female ratio is in the low 90s. For that matter, why is it that for the top states where there are more men than women, we find Alaska, North Dakota, Utah, Colorado, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, all these states in the Rocky Mountains region. Why? Right? Why is that? And the simple answer is I don't quite know, but like I said, I can speculate with the best of them. I can give an educated guess. If I were to venture a guess, I would say that the Rocky Mountains area is more of a draw for men who want to be manly. And whether they're born there or they move there, there's a lot to offer men. Wide open space, rugged terrain. If they like to hunt and fish, well, they can do that and be relatively left alone, undisturbed, unless they have you know a few friends that they like to do those things with, but they don't have to interact with the general public quite so much. There's work to be done that's more hands-on, but also it's not hands-on in close proximity to a whole lot of people. There's not quite so many factories. There's a lot more emphasis on agriculture, which is primarily a male pursuit. Oil and gas is big. The railroads employ a fair number of men. These are typically lines of work, parts of the economy, transportation and mining and agriculture that men gravitate towards more than women. And then the women, maybe they follow their husbands if they're married and they move to those places from another state, or if they're born in those states, maybe they stick around because they get married and they settle down. But then also the ratio is something like 40 to 60 for college graduates with a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree. And that's another interesting thing. That's another important thing to note about these states is they typically will send their children to other states to get a college education. There's not necessarily perceived to be as much demand for those with a college degree as, say, the big cities, the big cities on the coasts or the big cities out east. And so what? The young ladies, they come of age, they graduate high school, and their parents, if they want their daughter to be successful, they send their daughter off to college and their daughter might go to college on the coasts, in the east, more Midwest, and then their daughters go off to college 
And when job offers come because they finished their degrees disproportionately compared with the young men, they're not as likely to go back to their home state. They're more likely to move to the coasts or to stay where they went to college. I think that's what it is. I think this is partly reflecting the priority that has been placed on empowering young women, getting them into higher education, getting them into lines of work and careers and professions that require a college degree. Now, down south, where it's warmer, and there's at least the perception that there's more of a conservative bias, the Bible Belt and all that, it's a little puzzling that you get 93 men, 94 men, 95 men per 100 women. But then maybe also this is that there's not a lot of economic opportunity down south for the men. And so more men leave those states to go looking for economic opportunity. Oh, I don't know, maybe out west, right? You want to get a job? You want to work and earn and make a living? Maybe you move to Alaska. Maybe you move up to Montana. Maybe you move to North Dakota because there you're more likely to earn a living wage and be left alone. And that's a high priority for men in the South, this idea of Southern honor, being left alone, your privacy, your property being respected. That's much more of a Southern value. And if there are states in the Union, like Alaska, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, Wyoming, where that's perceived to be more possible, easier to do, more rewarding, always round socially and also economically, maybe you gravitate to those states and you leave the states down south. Maybe, right? Maybe. But I look at this and you would expect possibly, maybe, that the ratio would be very even, even if it's not even from state to state, because for reasons like what I just mentioned, men might gravitate towards states where they're going to be appreciated and valued. Women might be gravitating to states where they're going to be appreciated and valued along the lines they've been encouraged to be appreciated and valued, particularly in relation to higher education, professional accomplishments. You would expect that the ratio would kind of even out across the whole country. The ratio should probably be pretty close to 100 men to 100 women. Well, not quite though. The national average, according to wisevoter.com, for the male population is, according to this, 3,222,481 compared with 3,285,240. But wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. That only adds up to 6,507,720. We definitely have more people in this country than that. So how do they get to 6,507,720? Quite simply, we're looking at the average per state. But then that is to say, you multiply that by 50 and you get to 325,386,000. So then, as we understand, this is the average number of people, the average population per state, 6.5 million. 3.2 million of that 6.5 million on average per state is men. 3.3 million is, as you might imagine, women. So 3.2 million 
compared with 3.3 million, that's pretty close. That's very even. But it's still, on the whole, 98 men for every 100 women. So then, if every man married a woman, you would have two women left over. So that is to say, two women who, if they wanted to get married, there's no man available for them. Let me ask you this. If something drastic were to happen tomorrow, if something terrible were to happen to our geopolitical landscape, and we did have a hot war with China, everything with Ukraine and Russia boiled over and it stopped being a proxy war for the United States and China, and it started to be an out-and-out fight between the US and China, if that were to happen, and we tried selective service, including young women, and it was just a bad idea, it was a disaster, a whole lot of non-compliance turned into, all right, forget it, right? We'll send the men like we historically have and as is proper throughout all of human history, we'll send the men to fight. And let's say it was a very destructive war and a whole lot of men died. How many men might we send? Well, for some context, bear in mind that the estimate for the People's Liberation Army, that is the army of the CCP, the army of China, the estimate is 2 million 35,000. By comparison, the US, with the world's third largest military in terms of manpower, the US had 1.4 million active duty military personnel in 2022. So that's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force, all combined, 1.4 million. And just so you know, the stats are something like 72.6% male enrollment in the U.S. military, 27.4% female enrollment. That means we come out to just right around 1.02 million men, not counting the women, just the men in the U.S. military active duty in 2022. Now, I guarantee you, if we got into a hot war with China, a whole lot of men would be drafted and called up more than just the active duty would be put into motion. For instance, they would start training people who have no military training. They would, I would bet, draft a lot of military age, fighting age men in particular to prepare reinforcements for when units are wiped out or decimated or are no longer combat effective. They can't sustain themselves in the field. They take 30% losses. They take 20% losses. They take 10% losses. They need to backfill roles that have been vacated by men who've been either killed, captured, or so wounded that they're combat ineffective. So let's just say though, for right now, 1 million. But keep in mind, in 1945, the US had over 12 million active duty military personnel. 12 million. So that is to say, if the average male population of a U.S. state is 3.2 million, the number of active duty military personnel in World War II would be the equivalent of nearly four states sending all of their men. And those were World War II numbers. World War III? Who knows? Who knows what it would be? I'm sure there are statistics out there, projections, estimates, but Let's even just go with World War II numbers for a moment. 12 million men, all of the men 
who would be the population of four states, and I'm sure the number would be higher for a World War III scenario, but all the men of four states being gone, and I'm sure they would be drawn from all the states, but probably disproportionately states where men are more physically fit, more ready to be thrown into training and conditioning. You pull four states worth of men into the military and you send them off to fight and a lot of those men will come back. A lot of those men hopefully make it home, but again, using World War II statistics, there were about 300,000 total deaths on the U.S. side, 12 million sent off, 300,000 died. That's about a 2.5% casualty rate. So let's say 2.5% casualty rate for the winners who came in a bit late to the game and weren't the primary combatants early on in the conflict in a World War III scenario, we probably would be actually the primary target if China and Russia and all the rest, if they know what's up, they're probably thinking, let's learn from the last couple of world wars where the U.S. entered late and tipped the balance. When everybody else was tired, they tipped the balance in favor of a victory for the allies. Let's learn from the mistake there. Let's attack them first. No Pearl Harbor. No, no. Let's do something a lot bigger. Let's really go for the jugular on the U.S. China has a lot of people to draw on. And they've been allowed to, they've been facilitated, expedited really, in developing their economy and the productive capacity, modernizing, industrializing. Who's to say whether 2.5% or a number much, much higher, three, four, five times that high, would be reasonable in a World War III scenario? And again, I'm just thinking out loud here about what it would mean for our country, how our country operates, how our country functions, based on a lot of our values right now, do we have the kinds of values that would be able to bounce back and recover? If we got into a hot war, what would it mean if we just barely won or we fought to a truce and there were very high casualties, primarily of men, in a World War III scenario? What would that look like when all of the dust settled and everybody went back to their corners and licked their wounds and tried to build their countries back. What would that look like socially, culturally, politically, economically here in the U.S.? Well, for one thing, a potential baby boom would be a very curious thing. Supposing we had 2.5% casualties, and let's just suppose, even though it would not be this way, it couldn't possibly be this way, that the numbers would be static and fixed from World War II. We're a much bigger country than we were in World War II in terms of population. Around about 1940, we were 132 million people. Now we're something more like between 330 and 360 million, according to the stats that I typically hear. It's hard to know with illegal immigration, but we're upwards. We're north of 325 million if the average population per state is 6.5 million. So then, okay, if you could scale this up just so that we have some working assumptions, if you could scale up in proportion to how many more people there are in the U.S. today, two and a half times as many as there were in 1940, if you say there were 12 million active duty military personnel for the U.S. 
in World War II. That would rise to 30 million if everything was still proportional. 30 million active duty military, and that would come to 21.75-ish, right? 21 and three quarters million men if the proportions stayed the same. So then nearly 22 million men go off to fight and assuming the same casualty rate, the same percentage of active duty die in combat, we'd have over half a million men who died. And those are very conservative numbers given how much bigger China is, how much more aggression there is more directly between the US and China. We're the primary combatants in a World War III scenario. No two ways about it. But let's say half a million men don't come home because they die in combat. And that's not counting however many are severely injured. And they come home and they're either psychologically broken or they're physically broken. What does that do to the male-female dynamic? What does that do to us socially, politically, economically? What kind of a country will this be if it's already 98 men to 100 women, to where there's two women who, if they want to get married, there's nobody for them. If all the men are taken by the first 98 women, there's no men left. Now, one consequence could be that we just keep on with our current declining fertility rate, and we just keep on shrinking in the number of people when there are that many fewer men. Another possibility is that we have a baby boom. So a bunch of men who don't die come back home after years, probably, of fighting, being shot at, shooting, dodging bombs and missiles and various asymmetrical warfare type of attacks. They come back home and they have a strong instinct to get married and have children. And they have a whole bunch, a whole bunch of kids. Not every girl, not every woman gets picked. Not everyone is going to actually participate in that. But a lot of those men are going to come back home, get married, have a whole bunch of kids. But then keep in mind, bear in mind how different the messaging is to the general populace, how different our values are, generally speaking, than they were this time a century ago. There's a lot more of a push to decrease the population growth in the U.S. and around the world. There's a lot more of a push to shrink the population of the earth, but also because the U.S. is so consumptive and productive and we have so much environmental impact, it's said the U.S. should shrink. We should have fewer people. We should really slow our growth and actually contract in terms of the number of people in our country and how much each person consumes. An interesting thing to consider is an infographic I found over at populationeducation.org, which is, it appears to me, one of many of these nonprofit organizations trying to persuade, trying to cajole, trying to manipulate everybody into being a Malthusian pessimist. It's all materialism. It's all for the sake of the planet. Sustainable, so-called growth. But what they really mean is 8 billion people is too many. Let's have fewer people. 
let's convince young people to not get married, or if they do get married, to not have kids. Aspire to be more like Hannah, where your womb is closed, not be like Panina, who has multiple sons, multiple daughters. But they have this resource over at populationeducation.org, which I find interesting. Set aside their propaganda and what they're driving at, which is built on a faulty premise. However well-funded it is, however often they say it, it doesn't make it true. But this is interesting food for thought. Nevertheless, average house and household size in the U.S. in 1790, 831 square feet. That was the typical. That was the average. And just shy of six people lived in a house that size. 1850, the average house size was 888 square feet. And closer to five and a half people lived in each household. 1910, the average house size increased to 945 square feet. And one person went missing. Four and a half people, less than four and a half people lived in each household in the U.S. By 1970, according to their stats, according to their infographic, and the U.S. Census Bureau is cited here for the source, the average house size increased to 1,500 square feet. The average number of people per household shrank to just barely over three. In the year 2019, the house size grew to almost 2,500 square feet And now we're looking at about two and a half people per household. So that, in other words, there are plenty of households with just one person living in a house, plenty of households with just two people, just a man and his wife, or plenty of households where the man, the woman, they got divorced. Now the man has his own house. The woman maybe keeps the house and she lives over here with their one or two children, but it all averages out, right? Whereas before the man and his wife, and their two or three or four kids all lived in one house. Now, because of spacing and divorce and separation, living in separate houses is a luxury they can afford, and many, all too many, choose that. They opt for that. Not to mention, from 1970 to the present, legalized birth control and abortion have shrunk the size of the typical family, the typical household. But basically what you have is Much bigger houses for much fewer people, more houses for fewer people per house. And what's interesting about the way these organizations, organizations like Population Education, want to solve the problem, the kinds of solutions that they suggest and propose to sustainable growth problems that are mostly in their head. And there's an echo chamber. Everybody is repeating back and forth to each other these Malthusian pessimistic, materialistic, neo-pagan assumptions to where nobody even stops to question where some of these assumptions came from in the first place, whether they're sound, whether they have been proven true in the past. No, no, just carry on. Their solutions, ironically, are let's just use more birth control, more abortion, let's discourage marriage, or at least heterosexual marriage, Let's disincentivize, let's devalue heterosexual marriage, and let's incentivize homosexual unions or someone being bisexual or someone being serial monogamist. 
let's incentivize all of these other ways of doing things that will lead to the same outcome of fewer people because that's the problem. Well, wait a second. What if as much or more of the problem is how much of what's constructed is selfishly hoarded by people who insist on having their own way? Everybody wants their own room, but then when they grow up, they want their own house. And by they want their own house, what I mean is they would rather not get married or they would rather get married and get divorced. And then the kids, you know, if there's half a kid, two and a half people per household, maybe that's this man and his second wife because he divorced the first or she divorced him more likely. And then she lives over there with her new husband or boyfriend. And then the kid goes back and forth. And so half a kid for each household because half of the year this one kid lives with their mom and half the year this kid lives with their dad. And maybe that's part of how we get two and a half kids per 2,500 square foot household. Maybe. Allow me to propose to you that a lot of our looking with condescension on stories like the one in 1 Samuel chapter 1, a lot of our looking with condescension on those kinds of family dynamic is laughable at best. It's laughable at best that we would think we can sit in judgment as though we are so much wiser, so much more appropriate, so much more forward thinking, as if our outcomes are so much better than their outcomes were. Again, kind of like with a lot of the solutions that are put forward for sustainable growth problems, the world population. Oh, it's 8 billion. Oh, we can't support 8 billion. But we are, though. We are, though. And what percentage of the world's arable land is being used? And oh, by the way, isn't it interesting that a lot of the same people who say, ah, we need solutions, we need solutions, they don't like nuclear power, so they're opposed to that, and they hold up the construction of infrastructure close to where natural gas and oil and coal are produced that would minimize transportation costs, maximize efficiency, lower the costs. When it comes to drinking water, they oppose water desalinization plants being constructed. You could get all the water you would ever want or need from the oceans and just take the salt out of it, just clean it up and then put it to use. No, no, they don't They don't want to do that. Well, we don't have enough housing. Well, do you not have enough housing? Or are half of the moms and the dads in your cities living in separate houses? Would we possibly have twice as many houses available if you didn't have so many marriages ending in divorce or people just living perpetually with singleness as they, like so many bees, flit from flower to flower, pollinating all over the place, getting women pregnant, and then moving on, going on back home to be self-indulgent. See, we've normalized that. There's still some stigma on men who would just go around impregnating women and not supporting their children. There's still some stigma there. Not so much stigma on the women, but certainly on the men who just check out entirely, don't want to pay child support, don't want to show up, don't want to visit, don't want to take any interest in the lives of their children. And there should be more stigma on that. But there's less and less of even the batting of an eye. We don't even barely shrug if we find out that a married couple with children are getting a divorce. Most of us just say, oh, that's unfortunate. And what? We assume that there's nothing that could be done about it. There's nothing socially that either makes that an easy choice or a difficult choice. 
There's nothing that supports them figuring it out and staying together and having a healthy marriage and healthy children who grow up in a healthy home. No, no, we've given up on that. This is just what it is now. We throw in the towel. We make excuses and we even spiritualize it. We say, oh, well, you know, there are all these principles and, uh, you know, it's, it's not really a good situation. And, uh, you know, these things happen. And, and we're kind of like Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. We normalize what seems good to us, what is right in our own eyes. And we make an appearance of being harsh and strict with other people in a hypocritical way, in a pharisaical way, as that suits us to deflect from how we ourselves are totally ignoring what God's word would tell us, what God blesses, what he commands, what he prescribes. We're so casual with regards to divorce. Yeah, it's a tragedy and yeah, everybody's sad and oh, I'm sorry, but we're so casual about it. And what's curious is similar to the problem of what would happen if we had World War III break out and a whole bunch of men went off to fight and they died, they didn't come home. Similar to the question of what do you do in states where there's 93, 94, 95 men to every 100 women. So also thinking forward, what happens to household size and house size in the U.S. if we don't rethink the way that we're approaching marriage and having children? World War III aside, at the current rate, and this would please to no end, I'm sure, the Malthusians, but at the current rate, we'll have 5,000 square foot houses inhabited by one and a half people in the next 50 years. One and a half people because, well, sometimes he lives in this house and sometimes he goes over to live with his mom. So a man and a woman, they have one child. Oops, these things happen. And the child spends half the year living with mom, half the year living with dad. So they each get to say they have about one and a half people living in the home. I mean, that's the trajectory. Maybe it's a 4,000-square-foot house, I suppose. If it went up 1,000 feet from 1,500 in 1970, then that would be about a 40% increase, if my math is right. So we're pushing 4,000 square feet, but still, right? Still. What's at root here is not whether the planet can sustain 8 billion people. What's at root here is whether our attitudes can sustain 8 billion people on planet Earth or 325 million people in the United States? Can our attitudes sustain this many people? The houses are getting bigger and bigger since 1790. Meanwhile, the family size is getting smaller and smaller. Lots of people are just single. And what's up with that? Attitude, belief, capacity. The capacity to indulge ourselves Labor-saving devices, freeing up our time, freeing up our schedule, the ability to prevent children from being born, and also the loss of an incentive, as we see it, for having children in the first place. Because labor-saving devices now, back in 1790, would have probably primarily been actually, oh, we'll just have one of the kids do that. Right Now we have these tools and utilities, and those do the work, and 200 and 30 years ago, that work would have probably been done by one of your sons, one of your daughters, you, your wife, maybe you would do it, but then you would probably as likely as not have had the equivalent of Samuel do it, right? And oh, by the way, that's another thing to keep in mind here is when Hannah dedicates Samuel to the service of the temple and she's going to hand her son over 
to Eli, Eli will put this boy to work and feed him and clothe him and house him and all of that. Samuel is a servant to God, yes, but then, humanly speaking, he is serving Eli. So then if Eli needs some things wiped down, swept up, carried from here to there, gathered together, organized, that's probably going to be, at least in part, given to Samuel. In our day and age, we want bigger and bigger houses to house more and more labor-saving devices, more and more things that we can amuse ourselves with, entertain ourselves with, flatter ourselves with. But what's curious is that the basis for Penina, Elkanah's wife, giving Hannah a hard time has exactly reversed. It's exactly flipped. So Penina depresses Hannah over the question of, why don't you have any kids? You don't have any kids. Now the sentiment the pietistic, self-righteous, moralistic, condescending, very presumptuous, and as often as not, totally selfish, vain, conceited way of relating to a woman as pertains to how many children she has, whether she has children. It's more likely in the mainstream of American culture that if she is Penina, she's going to be harassed, commented on, picked at, passively, aggressively put down. Why do you have so many kids that you know how that happens? And I quote most people who find out that we have this many kids. The woman with no children is probably not just getting more of the attention of her husband, more of the affection of her husband. If she's married, she probably doesn't even have a husband until she's 29. On average, that's when women are getting married because they go to school, they enter the workforce, they live on their own in the big city or with maybe one or two other gals, and they have fun, and they are celebrated for that. If they get married, it's like, oh, okay, well, he had better be worth it. Why? Because of everything you're giving up, right? Comparatively, your opportunity cost is now calculated based on all of the other men you could have had fun with, and you chose this guy. All of the other places you could have traveled to and seen the world from and you chose to settle down with this guy. Well, I mean, you guys are going to wait a few years to get to having some children, right? So you can travel together now? I mean, you still want to do that, right? Yeah, you, you, I mean, you, you definitely want to get to know each other for a few years. Just be you. Yeah, and by the time she realizes that they've had no children, she's 35 and one year from so-called advanced maternal age. So now maybe she has one kid. We should think very carefully about how we look back in our own country's history, even just two centuries ago, two centuries and some change. We should think very carefully about a lot of the assumptions and presuppositions that we have like so much baggage when we look down on previous generations for having gotten married young, having had so many children. No, no, they may have had it more figured out than we do now. We may find that Our way of life, our manner of living, our orientation, our attitude is not sustainable, but it's not a question of land use, water use, how we generate electricity, how we transport ourselves, house size. No, no. It's a question of attitude. Heart size. Our hearts are two or three sizes too small. Our houses have gotten much bigger, three times as big, actually, as a matter of fact, since 1790. Look it up. 33%. (laughs) 
831 is 33%, 33.29% actually. So we're talking like spot on, one third the size of what they were on average in the US in 2019. They're three times as big, our houses, and our hearts are perhaps one third the size. Why do I say that? Because interestingly, our houses are three times as big and our family size is about one third the size what our family sizes were in 1790. But then all of that is a factor of not capacity, not that we lack the capacity to have children or support children, but it's how we choose to spend our money. And it's also how the culture around us, the society around us, the people who make the legislative decisions, who decide on tax rates and regulative burdens, it's how those people decide to incentivize and disincentivize having children. They make it more difficult to get all of the income that a family would need to support itself and to retain that wealth to support the family on one income because of tax rates. They regulate the manufacture of vehicles so that it's more expensive. It's more difficult to get a bigger vehicle between regulations and taxes. It's more difficult for one man to go to work and make the living to support a family that would have been normative in 1790. And some people will say, ah, yeah, but that was because of infant mortality, right? So many more children died in infancy or in childhood that that's the reason why people were having so many more children. No, 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 listen, 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 listen. There was much more biblical literacy a century ago, two centuries ago in this country than there is today. And there was more of a value, whether we're talking because we were reading our Bibles or because of the practical day-to-day business of running a household or running society, there was much more benefit and value assigned to having children. We've turned children into a loss leader for families in so many ways. And a lot of it is propaganda. And a lot of it is manipulation of a core function of government from all time, which is that government rewards those who do what is good. That's the institution's goal. That's the purpose as God instituted government, human government, civil magistrates, to reward and to praise those who do what is good, to honor them, to incentivize that Even if the government's not directly cutting a check to somebody, they can reward those who do what is good by honoring them. Because what? Because people in the community see that this person has been honored and celebrated and affirmed, and they say, okay, I'm more likely to want to develop strong ties to make a business deal with, intermarry our families, live next door to that person who's been honored in the community and vice versa, to punish those who do what is evil. What happens when the incentive structure actually rewards those who do what they shouldn't, and they don't do the good that they should do? If the incentive structure is there to be your own selfish pig, a lot of people, when they lack biblical literacy, will just, in a very very Pavlovian way, they will just do what is obviously most beneficial, most rewarding, most lucrative, They'll wait longer and longer to get married. They'll wait longer and longer to have kids if they do have kids, or they'll just not have kids, in part because we've said this is a global problem that the earth can't sustain 8 billion people and counting. Again, look at our farming techniques. Again, look at 
the potential is there absolutely to desalinize water, look at the infrastructure that we have in place to electrify our homes, look at how much more and more efficient we're able to make our labor-saving devices, but then also look at what percentage of the land is actually being used for agriculture. Besides our agricultural techniques, look at how much of the land we use in proportion to how much land we could use to grow crops and realize that this is not primarily a problem of capacity. This is a problem of attitude. The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann tells the story of William Vogt and Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug saw the problem of carrying capacity in developing countries where a lot of people were living on starvation rations. They were malnourished. He approached the problem from the standpoint of increasing the carrying capacity of those countries so that the land would be more productive. And it was possible, and it was done, and around about a billion people were saved from dying of starvation as a result. William Vogt, meanwhile, went around the world trying to convince people to stop having kids. No, no, I'm sorry, correction. He went to governments and tried to convince them to stop their people from having kids. He was coming from the U.S., and do you know who William Vogt influenced tremendously? Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich, around about the 1970s, went on national television, went on Johnny Carson's show multiple times to tell everybody, death, 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 if we don't all stop having kids ASAP. The government needs to get involved. The government needs to stop you from having children. It's an emergency. It's a national emergency. It's a global emergency. The sky is falling. At a bare minimum, he said, the media should be enlisted to dishonor marriage and the family so that people will stop having kids, present large families in the most negative possible light so that people see it as a loss leader. People see having kids as a cost and they don't see it as a benefit. They see it as a lot of headache, a lot of stress. Don't use media to equip men and women to be good parents, to have the values and the attitudes that are going to help them to be successful at raising children, loving children well, loving one another well, staying intact, staying together. No, no, don't do that. Show it in the worst possible light. And what's the effect, right? The effect is there's no end to excuses that people will make for themselves in being selfish, not getting married, not having children, or not staying married if they do get married, or not having more than one or two children. People do not run out of excuses, but it's not what the Bible would tell us. It's what we've been brainwashed and propagandized into believing. It's an unofficial one-child policy, as Jonathan Last explains in What to Expect When No One is Expecting. This is an unofficial one-child policy due to regulations and tax rates and disincentives culturally, primarily because the people with the money who own Hollywood and social media and the corporate news media are on board and have been on board for some time now to present this as foolishness, dangerous foolishness. So now what it is, instead of the members of your community rallying around because they see you being affirmed, they see you being honored publicly for doing the right things. That's part of how the civil authority is able to reward those who do what is good by recognizing them, giving them medals, giving them awards, 
having ceremonies to celebrate them, throwing parades. That's part of how you reward those who do what is good is you publicly praise them and then other people do the more material work. Hey, can I buy you a drink? Hey, can I buy you dinner? Hey, this is on me. Hey, I got you this gift. I just wanted to say thank you. I wanted to honor you as well. Hey, I'd like to offer you a job. Hey, I'd like to introduce you to my daughter. Hey, I'd like to introduce you to my friend who has a proposal for you. Instead of that, it works in exactly the opposite way, where if you stigmatize large families, if you make it stick, this negative association game, what do people do instead? They do the exact opposite, and it has equal and opposite reactions. Instead of gravitating towards those who are being honored, they pull away. So those who get married young, those who have a big family, who have lots of kids, are withdrawn from. They're stigmatized. Ooh, I don't want to be associated with them. For all the reasons that if they were being honored, I would want to gravitate towards them. I don't want to be associated with them because they've got kind of a bad reputation, right? Well, yeah, you know, when pressed, I, I don't really know why exactly. It's just, you know, like some people think that, you know, maybe certain situations weren't handled the best way. Maybe they don't have the best judgment. You know, maybe they don't manage their money very wisely. You know, they, yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just not sure that it's so wise that they have this many kids. I, I just don't think that's very responsible of them. Yeah. So it's unfortunate, but tell me more about how it's going with your divorce. Oh, you're seeing somebody. Wow. But you're not divorced quite yet. Oh, okay. Huh. All right. Well, tell me about this person you're seeing and your divorce isn't even finalized from your previous spouse. Mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. So what do they do for a living? Right. And we just, just like that, because it's normalized in our media, it's normalized that you would just get divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. The kids would grow up bouncing back and forth between mom's house and dad's house. We normalize this. People don't skip a beat. But again, this goes back to what a contrast there is from previous centuries. It's not that nobody did what they shouldn't do. Nobody misbehaved centuries ago. It's not that nobody got divorced. It's not that nobody cheated on their spouse. It's not that kids grew up with only one parent in the home, only in the most recent decades. It's that the incentive structures have been put up in a perverse way to affirm and to honor and to circle the wagons around those who do what they ought not to do and those who do what they ought to do in a traditional sense, in a conservative sense, in a biblical sense, we view as dangerous or perhaps insane, perhaps crazy. Certainly not people you want to be associated with because there's kind of a, well, risk, right? But notice, right, in real time, as we see that this is the game that's played and this is the trick but it's really not a trick entirely. In fact, this is partly what the government is supposed to do. This is partly how the community, how the society should function to reinforce certain mores, certain norms, certain values. It's just perverse. It's just twisted because it's been detached from the authority of God. It's been detached from reverence for God, the fear of the Lord, any recognition of his commands or his purposes or his promises or his character. It's been twisted. It's been corrupted. And when it's twisted, you start to see that those who don't have a strong understanding, a strong grasp on, firm grasp of what is true and what is good objectively are deceived easily, led astray easily. 
you know, think in Proverbs about the woman wisdom who is described by the way, again, I'll just reiterate this. She's described as a woman. She's a woman. Wisdom is a woman. She sends her maidens out to call to the simple, basically to advertise that there's a big dinner. There's going to be a big banquet held at the woman wisdom's house. Come and eat of the meat and the bread and the mixed wine and listen to the presentation by the woman wisdom as to how to set your house in order, how to be wise, how to be informed, how to be intentional in a way that will have a good end, in a way that will be a blessing to you and to your neighbors and to the city, to the community, to the society of which you are a part. And the woman folly, because folly is also described as a woman, the woman folly is calling to those same simple people, those same naive, uninformed, low-information voters, so to speak. The woman folly says, I'm also throwing a party. You could come to my party too. What we have with propaganda of a very certain type, of the type that Paul Ehrlich would approve of, but probably think is too tame still, of the type Edward Bernays advocated for and modeled and normalized, of the type Saul Alinsky would favor, what we have is an amplification of the woman folly when she calls to the simple of our towns, our cities, our states, our country. The woman folly gets a really big turnout when she throws a banquet, but it's stolen food. It's bread eaten in secret, in the dark, maybe with some loud music, quite a lot of anonymity, but her house leads down to Sheol. It leads to the grave. It leads to the death of a person, their family, their community, their nation, their people. Meanwhile, for all the same reasons, the woman wisdom is investigated. (laughs) Stories are run in the newspaper about how the woman wisdom maybe also didn't earn per se what it is that she's offering up. Maybe this is a bribe, actually. How do we know that she built her house with seven pillars that she hewed herself? How do we know that that's actually her table? Looks suspiciously like someone else's table that went missing. No, no, don't check the woman Folly's house. Let's focus on the woman wisdom for a moment here. Yeah, yeah. Where does she get off? Who does she think she is? She's going to call to the simple of the town. Yeah, no, 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 no. Excuse me, excuse me. Don't bring up that the woman Folly has also been calling for years and decades to the simple of the town. No, 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 don't change the subject. We're talking about the woman wisdom right now. Yeah, why does she have handmaidens? Do they make a fair wage? How come they don't have their own houses? If they're making such a fair wage, if the woman wisdom is so fair, how come it's her house and these handmaids don't all have their own houses by now? Hmm? How about that? What's up with that? We should probably set a court date. Yeah, don't go to her party. There's another party going on across town. Way more fun. Where did the food come from there? Ah, Don't worry about it. We just redistributed the food that was at the woman Wisdom's house that we found there that we can't account for. We we can't account for why she has livestock, why she has beasts, why she has this mixed wine. Where did it come from? She didn't have a permit to mix the wine and serve it. So yeah, wasn't so wise after all, as it turns out. You know, that's the way that it's been set up in recent years and decades. And the stand-in here is, to some extent, as dysfunctional as it is, as 
unfortunate in some ways, as uncomfortable and disturbing as it is in some ways for our modern sensibilities, the stand-in here for the woman wisdom is Hannah. She's vexed. She's anxious. She's depressed. Why has she not had any children? But she wants children. She wants to have children. You say, well, wait a second. I just can't get over the fact that this guy Elkanah has two wives. Wait, 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 wait. In our day, in an American context, if he divorced Peninnah and then got remarried three months later to Hannah, you'd say, yeah, I suppose that happens. Of course I'll be at the wedding. Yeah. (laughs) But because he's married to them both simultaneously, we think we have some moral superiority. It's absurd. You know, we get hung up on Peninnah and we say, ah, see, this is why we, this is why we should not be putting any kind of affirmation, special honor on women having big families, men having big families, because, you know, yeah, look at this Peninnah, right? He's a bad character, just tormenting Hannah. No, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold the phone, virtue signaler, for just a moment. We have the same sort today. They just work in the opposite direction. If Penina were alive today, she'd be the woman who has no children, and she's always picking at and making snide remarks about Hannah, and Hannah would have the big family, and Penina would be like, ooh, man, bet you're regretting those choices now to not take the pill. I'm going to go have some fun. You have some fun being home, changing diapers, wiping noses, cooking, cleaning. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should all aspire to Elkanah's situation. I'm not saying Penina should be put on a pedestal and we should all say, ah, yes, right. She was, right? She was right. Maybe she went too far with the teasing, but she, she she was a better woman than Hannah. No, don't do that, right? You miss the point if you suppose that the person who has so much is the one who knows what's up. Because that's another thing. In our context, instead of weighing and measuring people and assigning more virtue to their opinions, their actions, based on how many children they have, what do we do? We say, how many places in the world have they been to? How much money do they have? How many weeks of vacation do they get per year from their employer? How many years of college did they attend? degree do they have? How many degrees do they have? We do the same kinds of things that Penina is doing in relation to Hannah. And just like a woman may be blessed with having many children, and she may still be not such a great person, somebody may be blessed with having been all over the world, lots of great places, have been stamped into her passport in comparison to some other woman who's never left her hometown or never left her home state or never left the United States could have one woman who has a master's degree, she's got a PhD, she's got multiple degrees, very accomplished academically. She was always at the top of her class, straight-A student, and she speaks to and is allowed to speak to the woman who barely got out of high school as if that woman is a dunce and doesn't really honor God. She's not as good of a steward as the woman with the multiple degrees, the multiple advanced degrees high caliber title for some corporation. You know what? 
It doesn't make you a worse person, but it also doesn't make you a better person either. It doesn't mean you should be automatically assigned more credibility or more virtue. We shouldn't show partiality towards you when it comes to spiritual things or what we would presume about your relationship to God based on how many or few kids you have, nor either how many years of higher education you obtained, how many degrees you obtained or from what school, how many countries you've visited, how many languages you speak. But these things have their equivalent in our day along other lines. And how easy or difficult is it, depending on whether we're talking about Elkanah's household or whether we're talking about our own cultural context? Do we have so much virtue, so much wisdom, so much discernment when we're talking about the ways we show partiality or the ways women in our context will put each other down, establish a pecking order, even in the church, friends? And the short answer is no. No, we don't. The simple, short, brutal truth is no, we don't because we've conformed to the pattern of this world. And part of the proof of that is if a young lady says, you know what, I want to get married young and have a whole bunch of kids. I want to have a big family. I want to have six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. I want to get married to a man who loves Jesus, who will work hard to provide for our family. In most of the respectable mainline churches in this country, the successful churches, and you know that they're successful by how many people attend, how big their building is, how many square feet, how many ministries they have, how many degrees the people who serve in those ministries or lead those ministries have, where they went to school, how much money they make, what neighborhoods they live in. In most of our churches in this country, the advice to that young woman is, oh, sweetie, you're too smart for that. And it's feminism. (laughs) It's just undiluted feminism that those young ladies are given instead as they're discouraged from doing the good God-honoring biblical thing in getting married young and having children. We say, oh, sweetie, no, no, no. You have so much potential. You should go to college. You should study at least for a couple of years. Oh, well, you know, okay, so now you're halfway there, right? You're halfway to your four-year degree. Just go ahead and finish your four-year degree. Then they get to their four-year degree. They've dated some guy and then they broke up and they dated another guy and they broke up. And now they're like, yeah, forget it. I don't need no man. I'll just finish my four-year degree. And then they get to the end of their four-year degree and some professor or some potential employer says, you know, have you thought about getting a six-year degree? And before you know it, we're right where we are. You get exactly what we've gotten, which is 29-year-old women marrying 30-year-old men and taking birth control for the first several years and then trying for several years after that to get pregnant unsuccessfully. Now they're in advanced maternal age and they're 36 and maybe they have one and a half kids. Maybe they have two kids. Now they're tired and now they have all this college debt. And yet we look down on the people we read about in the Bible, like we're so superior. No, no, we've got our own problems. They're not always the same problems, but they certainly are very similar problems when it comes to the attitude. The expression may differ, but the attitudes are there. And we shouldn't suppose if we're judging by appearances, just because we have different appearances, that means that we don't have the same problems. Do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit. Do nothing. Peninnah in 1 Samuel 1 was acting out of selfish ambition and vain conceit when women today motivated along very similar lines, behave from the same attitude. It looks different. It has a different expression, but it's the same attitude. 
It's selfish ambition and vain conceit. They pick at women and torment them and try to lord it over them. And in subtle but sure ways, here and there, pick, 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 denigrate those women to make them feel less than so that those women will be thought better. Now I'll be loved. Maybe what they want is love. Maybe what they want is affection. But then also too, now we have a hurting woman over here who's been picked at, denigrated, put down, harassed, tormented. She's depressed. She's vexed. She doesn't want to eat. She's lost her appetite. She feels extraordinarily lonely. What should she do? She should go to God. She should do what Hannah did. Take the request to God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, present your requests to God. Have peace predicated on a trust that God sees you. God will remember you. But then recognize, too, that man alive, if we're doing the thing that our culture around us affirms, it may not age well. That's another lesson we can glean from the story of Elkanah, the story of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, too. Okay, maybe nobody was commenting on it. Maybe people just kind of grimaced and groaned. Maybe they shrugged, too. They said, well, yeah, whatever. The priests are doing whatever, so we also will be doing whatever. And if they don't comment on it, they don't call it out, well, then okay, that's fine. Must be okay. The priests would have said something if this were not okay. The priests don't say anything because they don't want anybody to say anything about the things that they do that they shouldn't be doing and the things that they don't do that they should be doing. So everybody wins, right? Well, no. No, actually, because the script changes at a certain point. A few thousand years goes by. We look back and we say, whew, now if you're of the opinion that it's all just this life, this life is all there is, there is no God, there's no fear of God before your eyes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, then you don't particularly care how posterity will remember you after you die. It's not your problem anymore, so you're just going to get all you can now in this life. But wait, the trouble there is, there is a God in heaven, just like he remembers Hannah. He grants her request, he grants her petition. He will visit justice on Eli, Hophni, Phineas. They will come to a bad end in due time, at God's timing. So don't be like those guys. Don't be like Penina. I wouldn't especially advise following Elkanah's example here either. He doesn't come out looking so great. If you're going to get married, live with your wife in an understanding way. You need to, you're told to, you're commanded to, Christian, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If that's not even a motivation for you, well then, there's no fear of God before your eyes. And what are you doing? Why are you putting on the appearance of religiosity, going through the motions, checking the box? Perhaps God knows. God knows better. But on the flip side, we're given these things. We're told these things. This is scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means for Samuel 1 is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So then one lesson we can take away is the cautionary tale here. If there are parts where we say, ooh, man, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be like that. I see myself having a tendency towards that and it doesn't seem like it comes to a good end. Have an attitude of repentance wherein you want to agree with God, you want to believe God, and then act accordingly. And then act like it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you'll do that, it will go well with you. That's righteousness. To believe God when he says, this is the way, walk you in it. This is what I will do. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. The rest of the world may break its own head, but tell the righteous it will go well with them. 
that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.